Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 121, recorded on September 5th of 2020, the show where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and we geek out about photo stuff. Um, usually stuff in the news cycle, it could be gear, we're doing a lot of that today. Other times it could be ethics and legal uh, you know, conundrums that photographers face. And uh, with me is, I, I, I almost, I don't want to say I don't like to have the same person on the show twice in a row, but this guest is just the best guy to talk gear across the board. Steve Brazel is back with me in the co-pilot seat to talk about some fun new cameras and sensors and lenses. Steve, how are you? I'm doing very good. I'm oversaturating myself is what I do. <laughs> well, I've I'm, seen the I, I'm the Bruce Willis of podcasts. You you do the uh, the, the copious <laughs> note taking, and uh, you know you really get under the hood of any of these stories that I bring up, and and because there's so many little bits of minutia in these stories today, it's great to have you back on. Uh, what have you not, uh, been up to since the last time I talked to you? It's good like, to see two, you too. Uh, just you know, <laughs> living in Southern California, melting basically today and tomorrow. We're looking at 117 degrees. Probably end up being around 116, but it's almost a record. Um, and so just, you know, doing that and lots of podcasting. And I just talked to a mutual friend of ours. I was on Jeff Harmon's podcast, uh, this week and I got to uh, have, have him back on this one too. Yeah. Jeff's a good guy. Uh, master photography podcast. We talked about my, my attaching my Canon 5d Mark four to my, my mead telescope for photographing the moon. And it was fun. We had a good time. And he also does the Photo Taco podcast, which I've been on as well. Yep. So I've been on that one too. Um, yeah. He's got a couple of good things and he's got a full-time job. So I'm not sure what he's, <laughs> how he's managing that. Uh, I mean, even you, I mean, you're, you know, full-time working IT and yet you podcast everywhere. You're such a, a common voice in my ears now. Uh, and so, Hey, we're, we're all in this together, I suppose. Uh, you know, it's, I love good conversations about tech and photography and the two, and that's, that's part of the reason I think this podcast does so well is because most photographers are geeks. We like to and geek I, out on the, 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 the detail. Let's let's go back to, to one thing that you said earlier. It's going to be about 117 degrees Fahrenheit in uh, in your yeah, area of California right now. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, as a true artist, to make sure the audio is as clean as possible, Steve turns his air conditioner off yeah. during the recording. <laughs> yeah. So if he starts to get a little bit weird by the end of this, you, it's because I'm why. melting. Yes. <laughs> no, I, what I do almost with every recording is I turn the air way down so that no matter what, it won't turn off. And then right before I record, I turn it off because the vent is behind me. And, and it actually, strangely, on this high LPR 40 does not come through a lot. But there is that, that low that you can hear. Well, uh, if we end up hearing that at like the 40 minute mark, we'll know you've thrown up the white flag and just, ah, exactly. I don't care anymore. Uh, <laughs> well, we got some stories to talk about this week, um, particularly some very big announcements from Panasonic. Now, I, I was actually going to skip this week of a podcast. I've just got so much on my plate. I'm trying to get my book done, but I needed to give this time uh, to these stories and to be consistent. And I hope everybody listening appreciates that. Um we have the Lumix DC-S5, which everybody's just going to call the S5. Um, and that has been announced on September 2nd, uh, alongside firmware updates for the S1, S1R, S1H, uh, announcement of prime lenses for the uh, the uh, the L-mount system from Panasonic as well. We got three of those. I don't know if they were rumored or confirmed in the past, but we've got solid names and numbers next to them right now. Um, and, and to be honest, I mean, the, the S5 is such an interesting camera because the biggest complaints about the uh, the L-mount system is, well, on the Leica side, it's crazy expensive. Sigma's doing their weird niche thing, but it's not really a, a central uh, you know product line right now that most people are going to pay attention to. And while the Lumix S cameras, uh, I, I was shooting with one just before we started recording, they're great. They're fantastic. But they're also fairly expensive. And it's that price point, I think, that a lot of people were looking at and thinking, you know, if I had $1,000 to spend, where do I spend it? Nothing comes close to in this lineup. Even 2000 was still well below the price of a body and a lens. And now we're hitting at about that price point with the S5. And it packs a ton of features. Steve, what do we have that we're looking at here? First of all, isn't 
Panasonic just killing it lately? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody that they've released in the last, I, I mean, I could go back a couple of years, has been a body that has been, and lenses too, but I'm, I'm focusing on bodies, has been a body that the market as a whole has gone, hmm, this is interesting. I mean, they are really, uh, you know, everybody in the mirrorless market for years has talked about Sony and then, you know, Nikon gets into it and Canon's getting into it. But really, kind of just as this constant voice has been Panasonic doing what I think better than other th camera manufacturers, doing what photographers want. I think photographers want this body. It's a small size. It's small in the hand, but it has for less than $2,000. It's got killer features. It's, it's marketed, I think, intelligently. And I wonder if it changed because of the nightmares Canon went through. It's marketed <laughs> correctly, I'm guessing. I haven't shot it as a hybrid camera body for stills and video. And I think that's smart. Yeah. And uh, if if you're new to the system, you're going to have to dish up more than two grand because you're going to need to either get a lens adapter or a lens. And so they bundle one in with a kit for um, uh, twenty two ninety nine, <laughs> And that's the um, uh, 20 to 60 f 3.5 to 5.6 kit lens, which, you know, it's more than enough to get you started. Uh, I prefer the 24 to 105 kind of range, but it's going to cost you more to get there. But but with the um, 20 to 60, which is variable aperture, yes, but it's still, it's only $2,300. And just looking at the body, you're talking, you know, obviously compact mirrorless. Uh, they went 25, 24 megapixels, which people mm -hmm. complained about on the R6. They've got a reasonable ISO range, native ISO range of 100 to 51, uh, 200. They've got in-body image stabilization, five axis, six and a half stops if, if paired with a good lens. I have never, I know you have, and I'm curious what you think of this. First of all, one of the big things they're talking about actually is that it's going to be a better AF system that through firmware will probably be throughout the S line, but the sensor. Oh no! Don't, don't don't just move over that. Okay. The uh, depth from defocus, the DFD right. um, uh, autofocus technology, especially when you would be using continuous auto autofocus, it, it didn't have a a terrible hit rate for stills, but it had this pulsing effect that was really noticeable in video and a huge distraction. And I think that uh, early on, I, I realized that that system uh, is based on in interpretation of data. Right. Well, and it's uh, two photos. It takes two photos at different depths to analyze what should be in focus where. Well, it, it doesn't necessarily take them. Uh, it's analyzing the live sensor data. Right. That's what I. Well, I'm okay. Yeah, not actual images captured. I'm saying visual images on the sensor. It it pre-focuses in different areas to decide what to do. Yes. And I always thought that that was a prime example of how software could improve that over time, how of new deep learning, AI, whatever algorithmic word you want to use for those, uh, you know, that technology getting better. Um, there was headroom in all of those cameras to make that improvement better. So that's in the S5, at least in its initial, uh, you know, foray. But that's also coming to every other S-series camera body, right. which, uh, which I think is just fantastic. The fact that we're getting major upgrades to our cameras. Uh, I've had the S1R for over a year. Uh, and in the firmware update for it, they're just, I, I don't know if anybody was asking for it, but they're allowing it to now shoot 5K video instead of just 4K. Right. Because yeah. it ha it had the ability to do it, and why not just give something to our loyal customer base in order to make them even happier with the products? And, that but they that's were what I mean. Enjoying. Panasonic is listening to photographers. Panasonic is putting out products that I think real normal users want to have. And when you when you release a camera, because one of the one of the complaints I have heard from Panasonic shooters is especially in continuous that Panasonic is not the best AF system compared to some of the, the other brands that are out there. If this brought them on par or even close to par, that's a huge jump. I was going to go to the sensor shift thing where you can sensor shift and create 96 megapixel raw or JPEG images. I've never done that. Have you? Oh, yes. Um, I've done that on my S1R. Uh, specifically, I can do that pixel shift mode. It basically quadruples the resolution by taking um, eight separate images with ever so slight uh, uh, differences between them. 
And uh, that can generate a whopping 187 megapixels on the 47 megapixel S1R. And um, for the other cameras that I have uh, in that same series, you'd have uh, the 96 megapixel image. And it works really, really well for a still subject. That's uh, what I was going to wonder because, uh, you know, I, effectively you're stitching four shots together. Um, well, you're, you're technically stitching eight by the way that it's moving in, uh, I forget exactly. And you're not really stitching cause they're not shots. They aren't written to the card as shots and then stitched physical it's, JPEG or raw data. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's gathering, they're sensing. It's, it's gathering the information right. to approximate what that resolution of a sensor would be. Right. Uh, now that that's not a magic bullet in some cases. If you're shooting at say f22 or f32 and you turn this mode on, um, diffraction is going to destroy most of the gains in resolution that you would have um, because it's just not there. Right. That just by moving things around doesn't inherently give you more resolution when the lens itself would be the bottleneck within that framework. Right. So um, but uh, to have that on on a camera at this price point, I think, is uh, well, you know, wonderful. And, and that just scratches the surface. This is a, a sub 2000. I say sub 2000. OK, it's, it's 1998. <laughs> yeah. It's a two thousand dollar body with a magnesium chassis, a full flippy screen. Oh, everybody was complaining. I, I mean, I wasn't complaining about the sort of pseudo flippy screen on right. the S1 and the S1R. Uh, they put the full articulating one on the S1H. Uh, confetti fell from my ceiling somewhere uh, and made me very happy, you know, just celebratory moment. And now to see them putting that on the S5, keep that trend up. And they're not done. Du dual band Wi-Fi. Yep. Bluetooth. The, the weird thing, the weird thing, and this, this to me is where they tried to save money. And it's obvious it's dual SD slots, but only one of them is UHS two. And also the viewfinder is a lower resolution compared to the, right. uh, the, the rest of the S uh, series lineup, which I, I gotta say, once you look through those really high resolution EVFs, it's almost like there's no going back. But if, um, if what you want is a virtually pocketable body. Yeah. Well, let's talk you know, about You're going to make sacrifices too, right? somewhere. It's, it's not just cheaper. It's so much smaller. If you see this thing in comparison to a, a GH5, it's smaller than a GH5, at least from the comparison photos that I've seen. I haven't right. had both of them in my hands at the same time, um, but they're packing a ton into well, a tiny full frame. Body. And by doing, by doing the lower res on the, on the EVF and on the LCD, they're getting better, better battery life. 440 images specced on the LCD, 470 on the EVF. It's a different battery, though. So I'm not sure, right. like, uh, uh, milliamps per milliamps, what the actual comparison would be. I haven't oh, looked at But still, you got numbers, a camera that, that specs at 440. My guess is you're going to get way more than that. Mm -hmm. um, there's something I saw in the blog post. I, I don't even know what it is. And I'm, I'm guessing Dawn does. Live composite mode. So... I I don't know. This could be one of two Did things. You, you noticed it too in there, right? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, this could be one of two things. And uh, so on um, the, uh, the S series cameras that I have right now, if I wanted to do a multiple exposure, uh, it has the ability to give an overlay of the previous image that I shot as an onion skin sort of thing that would allow me to properly overlay two images together and in real time composite a multiple exposure shot. Um, well, it, okay, hold on. When it, you say real time composite, is it actually compositing or is it just giving you the onion skin to line it up so that when you get into Photoshop, you know the stuff is really close? Yes, both. Um, so, so it actually creates a third composite images image out of the two. I know it creates the third image. I cannot recall if there was a setting in my existing cameras to save the original two as well. Um, Interesting. But I do know that it does save a combined shot. Um, but it, it could also be, I know that um, I was talking with uh, Joseph Lanashki on an episode recently where- Who was he just mentioned, on with us for our critique show. Exactly. And he mentioned that- uh, was it the G90 uh, or some such camera body in the Micro Four Thirds lineup had a feature that was very similar to the Olympus um, uh, real-time exposure monitor for long exposures to slowly see the exposure being built. Um, and it could be that. I don't know what they're calling it. I don't know exactly what the uh, what the names would be. Either of those features are fun. If it's one or the other or somehow there's both in there, I would be happy. 
the, the, this is the area that surprised me on this camera, though. $2,000 is still a lot of money to a, a lot of consumers. So, okay, they built for $2,000. They built a, a very respectable spec sheet. You know, leaves to be seen how it works, although uh, DP Review's initial response was good. But to then also include the video features that they did in this body for $2,000... And there's some nice video features in there. Oh, I, I got to say something that I didn't expect to see. What? Okay. Four, 4K resolution, that's standard, and I expected that. Yeah, uh, and, and let's say it's, 10, it's 10 bit 420, 4K 60, but you end up with an APS-C crop. Right. But if you plug this into an Atmos Ninja V over HDMI, you can record 5.9K. Um, $2,000 body. Yeah, on a two thousand dollar. So you're you're getting that additional uh, wiggle room on, and now it's it's saying by the end of 2020 it's not available yet. So uh, they're still working out stuff because you've got firmware that has to be developed by multiple companies and it takes a bit more time, I'm assuming. But I didn't expect that. No, um, no. And yeah. and I'll be honest with you. Again, they're telling you you're going to be able to shoot that resolution. And I, you know, what about overheating? I'm guessing there isn't any. This thing will do 10-bit 422 at the full width mm -hmm. uh, at either 30 or 24. Let's say that. It's not 60. It still has the 30-minute limit when shooting 10-bit. No yeah, limit and that, that still bothers me. Um, I, I don't know if there's a tax associated with that anymore. I don't think that's what they're saying. I think that's heat because there's no limit with eight, which means it's still a video camera, right? right. And the tax is based on video devices. Um, and again... I've heard the tax is gone, but I've not been Me able too, to confirm but, that. Yeah. So and we, we've talked about that before. But this has got to be heat that they're worried about. And uh, well, let's hope that they put an actual thermal sensor in there, unlike Canon's, which I remember reading yesterday or today that Kalari Vision, which does a lot of infrared conversions of cameras, um, they might have been taken apart an R5 for a conversion. And they noticed um, specifically uh, inside. Uh, a chip that is a a counter chip rather than a thermal sensor that they believe to be, um, uh, you know, it's connect. There's an internal battery, and there, there was this whole article about that. Again, it's not anything new. We've assumed this for the longest time that Canon was counting rather than right. actually um, temperature sensing. But um, so onward and upward for Panasonic here. Uh, now, I guess the bigger question is. Maybe you haven't decided on a system yet. You're still trying to figure out where you're going to go. Um, three new lenses. So uh, we've got well, one, a one more thing on the body. First of oh, all, sure. they give you lots of formats. V-Log, V-Gamut, HLG. Yeah, V-Logs is in by default where you would have had to have yes. paid extra on the S1 to on have the S1. that, which is nice. But it also has headphone and mic jacks and supports their XLR adapter. This is This is a true hybrid camera and they're even saying they're going to do dci cinema 4k and raw video out with yeah, a firmware so, uh, update. dci is uh, uh 4096 uh pixels across where the regular uh 4k is 3840 right. i think so it's it's the same physical um it's, number it's of cinema crop though but it's yeah uh, it's, so it's, it's like a, a bit it, wider is it 185 to one or 235 to i don't know i can't uh, remember but also vector scope <laughs> i mean Real videographers want a vector scope. This thing, mm. I, I am I am truly honestly shocked that at $2,000, it's almost like they walked into the engineering room and went, um, here's $2,000 cash on the table. Build me something. I remember when Sony first bought Minolta and really needed to make a splash in the market. And they produced products that um, really were comparable, if not better than their contemporaries uh, from uh, Canon and Nikon and, and everyone else uh, in, in that market that they were battling in. Um, but their price was undercutting them. And I don't know if they were making money on them at that point or not. Uh, but it was the idea that if we can produce a comparable product or a better product at an equal or cheaper price, then we're going to start gaining market share. And look how that's worked for Sony. That's worked incredibly well for them. Um, and I don't know if that's the same strategy here with Panasonic. I have no idea how much it costs to make this thing, uh, but they're putting it all on the table with it. And uh, okay, I got to say, if I'm all like super happy about Panasonic, they sponsor me. I am sponsored by Panasonic. Yeah, but and, see, I'm not. And, and you're just as excited. here that's super <laughs> intriguing to me. 
DP review got to shoot it or at least touch it or play with it. They had initial mm-hmm. reviews or not reviews, but you know, initial impressions. Same as we feel it's a lot of features, a lot less money than an S one, but a lot of features, good balance. Uh, the what, camera what people the had hoped for, but here was, S1. here was the one quote that I thought was interesting and I don't necessarily agree with to some degree. It's a camera Panasonic had to make to be competitive in the full frame market. And I think Panasonic's probably doing okay. And I don't think that they had to make this, but I I think other than for me, like I probably wouldn't enjoy this body because it's too small for my hand. But I think this is going to be a popular body. And if you if you are a U.S. customer, this was this blew my mind. If you're a U.S. customer and you pre-order this body before the end of September, Panasonic will send a Sigma 45 millimeter F 2.8 DGDN at no charge. Wow. And by comparison, the Lumix S1 is currently selling for just under $2,500. So uh, $500 less on the body, and you get a free lens. Now, is that just with the uh, the kit, or is that also with the body alone? uh, All I know is what they said in the article, which is if you're in the U.S. and pre-order by the end of September, they'll send you this this Sigma lens at no charge. And I guess the question is, I should have looked it up. That Sigma lens is roughly, where's a price on this wonderful Sigma lens? Uh, Dead air, Steve. You shouldn't yeah, do that. Yeah, I know. I'll <laughs> well, look it up. You keep well, talking well, well, While you're me. looking that up, no, I was g- going to go back and mention the, the three new lenses that Panasonic has. It's uh, a has $550 lens. That That's incredible. It's incredible. Um, that's, I mean, I don't even know how. I, I, I didn't even see that in the article. Thank you so much for finding that. Yeah, it's the last sentence in the thing, right before the the, the press release, and you know, just my luck, I said it, and oh yeah, and the, there it is. The article is wrong, but you see it in there too. I'm hoping. Yep. <clears throat> I don't know. First of all, I don't know why they're doing a Sigma lens and not a Panasonic lens. Uh, well, the uh, partnership probably just allows them to to buy it at cost from Sigma. I I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm sure they get their own lenses at cost, and well, they've got a bunch of new ones. <laughs> But they, I don't know if they, they don't have their new primes available yet, uh, and they'd want to have a less expensive lens, and they're still fleshing out their system, whereas Sigma has been able to adapt their previous lenses uh, with the same size image circles to this uh, to this format. So um, that's my suggestion. But I wanted to mention the 24, the 35, the 50, the 85 millimeter F1.8 L mount primes. And um, this, I think the system needed. I still think the system needs a proper macro lens from Panasonic and other trick lenses like a fisheye lens and a tilt shift lens and those niche products that they're not going to sell a whole lot, but they'll kind of round things out. Yeah, but at that market the, share, would would they would a, if you if you ran Panasonic based on the the camera market, I, I today, would do exactly what they've just done. You would hit the high volume products first, right. getting these good primes. They're not f one point four or one point two lenses. One point eight is fine. So f one point eight is perfectly fine, uh, and it it cuts down the manufacturing cost and the final retail price as well in order to get them in people's hands. Well, I agree. I would do a macro too, but you know, you mentioned tilt shift Sig- and lost. And Sigma's me. got one. I I uh, don't see Panasonic ever making a tilt shift lens. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even think Sigma does. I don't know how many of them Canon and Nikon sell. Uh, it's a pretty niche market. Uh, they do have a fisheye lens for micro four thirds, I believe. Um, but the, the idea of what I'm saying is you hit all the, the, the really common points, you know, these F1.8 primes, huge sale volume on those. Uh, they'll, you know, the 24 would be a great landscape lens, maybe even to do some astrophotography with. Uh, 35 and 50, great action sports lenses when you get to the 85. 85 for portrait. Exactly. Uh, and so everybody can get pretty well equipped now uh, where initially when any system starts, you're kind of starving for lenses and you're adapting them and they work. They don't work perfectly. You might not get your image stabilizer to work or your autofocus might be clunky. Um, but with this native glass, uh, we're we seeing know one of them comes in November, the 85. And uh, the other ones, they just say near future. So uh, we don't know how near that happens to be, um, whether that's before or after November. I, I kind of want to say if they don't want to say the, the exact time, it'll likely be after, but I've got no inside knowledge on that. Let, let's uh, talk firmware for a second. Sure. Because the S-series firmware, which we touched on earlier, is supposed to be out by the end of the year. 
But there's something else, you know, not only the enhanced autofocus that, again, we touched on earlier, but it also includes head detection now, not face detection, head detection. And the way it was described was if somebody turns their back to the camera for a second, like you're doing basketball, you're focusing on somebody, they spin around, it still sees the back of the head as a head. For all of those people complaining about photographing backs of heads uh, that were just out of focus, you've (laughs) you've got that now. Um, and I think we'll continue to see upgrades, you know, uh, more than just bug fixes through the life of these. I just don't just see how that's going to work though, because as an example, I'm bald, but (laughs) I used to have long hair to the middle of my back. As somebody does turn their back to the camera, it's going to be a really interesting test to me to see how that works differently between someone with long hair, short hair, skin, um, mohawk you know whatever it's going to be interesting to see what the limits of that are uh it's it's like when when you're a small child um and you learn object permanence for the first time right Uh, which nobody remembers because you're too small to formulate uh active memories into adulthood at that age Uh, but my daughter is four and i remember when she was going from infant to toddler um where she would remember an object and where it was and I think it's something similar to that, where it remembers seeing a face, and then even if that object turns around, then it still has the memory of a face being associated with it, and it can draw the connection there. Um, so our cameras ha- now have the intelligence of very small children, which is scary. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In some cases, it would be better intelligence than adults, but that's a different story. Oh, well, let's not go down that uh, uh, that avenue right now. <laughs> I'm sure we could opine on that. Oh, yes. Quite seriously. One thing that we didn't mention about the S5 that I think is important um, is that it has a seven frames per second burst shooting. And that goes down to five frames per second when you have continuous autofocus on. Um, and so that might be too slow for some people. Um, but I remember uh, completely wearing out a, a Canon 5D Mark II body. And that shot at 3.9 frames per second, and it launched my professional career. So, um, yes, it's not going to hit 10 frames per second or 14 or whatever other action cameras might, but it's also coming in at a price point to match. Yeah, and f- I, I really honestly, I think for the average soccer bomb dad, the the average parent, the average hobbyist, or even some people that are doing pro stuff, I think that's going to be fine for a lot of people. I, you know, I originally saw shot concerts on a Canon 7D, the original. And, you know, I wasn't getting what I would love, which was, you know, 10 plus frames per second, but I did a three shot burst and got what I needed and it worked. Yep. Um, You know, you adapt and you work your way around it. And for, for, you know, $2,000, it's a fair trade-off to me. I mean, they've packed a lot of this in if it proves to all, you know, stay (laughs) as, as advertised, that's going to be the key. Right. And, you know, I've, I've got a, a Ninja V here for some video recording. Uh, if I have somebody asking me for the highest quality, uh, I've got the S1H and I can shoot uh, ProRes RAW in that. I don't know if it's said if the S5 will do ProRes RAW or not. I know it'll do f- uh, 5.9K on, uh, uh, on the Ninja V, but I don't know exactly in what format uh, specifically. I'm sure we'll find that information in the next little while. I, I, I just think the big thing to me is Panasonic. Panasonic to me is is really interesting now. Yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, there's also this was really the a time to shine for their new full frame setup. No announcements were made in the Micro Four Thirds arena. Um, so, I, I mean, I understand that that's a semi mature platform. Uh, I'm hoping that there might be an update on some of that stuff soon as well. Although uh, I'm happy with my S-series cameras. I still use my GX9 on an almost daily basis. Uh, It's the camera that kind of sits on the table upstairs where, you know, if my daughter's running around outside, you know, I can easily take some wonderful snaps of her uh, in a way that just wouldn't be possible uh, with a smartphone. So, yeah. Uh, Talking about camera technology... Um, This is interesting. So Canon has always been on the forefront of new weird sensors, sometimes being like shoved into industrial bodies for various different things that can, you know, see a bat flying in the dark at under moonlight or whatever. Right. Um, 
So they've kind of taken that in a different range here. Uh, from DIY Photography is a story. Uh, Canon has developed a new sensor with 20 stops of dynamic range. That's good down to 0.08 lux. So, I mean, currently we're hovering around 15 stops of dynamic range for most cameras. Let's say between 14 and 16. Yeah, I, I'd say like 13 to to 16 in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the lower and end and keep in mind, be... the human eye, for, for reference, depends on kind of how you say it and how you measure it. Because one of the things the human eye has is dynamic adjustment with iris, etc. But assuming all things being equal, a human eye is plus 20. It's, you know, 22, 24 stops. Yeah. And that's from like purely adjusted night vision to snow blindness, you know, and there's Correct. lots of arguments as to, you know, uh, do you include those extremes because you can't immediately adjust from one to the other. Um, but in, in this case, 20 stops is getting pretty close to uh, what human eyes can see with all sorts of strangeness of our brains and our, our eyes becoming more sensitive. Um, and it's not just, oh, well, you're, you know, 25% better. An increase of a stop is a double, right? right? So you add one stop and you double the dynamic range. You add another stop, and you double it again and again and again. And so um, it's this not- This is five to six times more light. It's an incredible amount of uh, of improvement over what we have right now. And they did show some videos. Um, it's low resolution. So uh, when I say low res, it's full HD. Uh, just slightly beyond the footprint it's of two megapixels. by 1080. It's two megapixels. Um, but with which, very large megapixels for two megapixels. Oh, very, very large pixel size right. for the megapixels. Um, so wh what do you see this? Uh, do you see this as a test bed technology where they're just trying to build it on onto a smaller sensor before they decide to roll that out to a more flagship type of product? Canon's done that before, uh, putting specific features in non-1D bodies, and then the next iteration of that flagship camera has those same features. Um, or is this going to be more exclusively for a, a, a science, military, industry kind of market? At some point, both, but intention to start with, I think, is the second. I think this is a commercial use. So to put it in perspective, one candle is one lux at one meter. So three feet away, one candle is about one lux, and this does 0.08 lux in full HD color. So that's pretty amazing. Imagine yeah, the previous, that. their previous cameras were uh, in the same area were black and white. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this is full color at this, but imagine security systems. So imagine you've got very small hidden security cameras that are shooting full HD in color in the dark when there's no street lights and no building lights or no lights inside the building. That is an industrial use I could see this being used for. It, yeah, the sensor itself, the LI7050, uh, is a uh, 1 over uh, 1.8 inch CMOS uh, sensor. So um, that, I believe, would fit perfectly in a C-mount camera, which is commonly used for security purposes. Easily. And again, it, you, can't, you, can't under, you can't overstate the size of the pixel. So uh, this is slightly less than the pixel size of a D850. And uh, which great is quality on a D850. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that. This is a little less than that. Now, granted, it's less than half the pixel size of a A7S III from Sony. But for the use, I, I, I see this being used for a lot of different things. Um, DIY photography made a quote. Let it shoot 4K 120 without overheating and we'll all be set. <laughs> <laughs> well, which, we get 2K out of it. But, yeah. um, but I think that there is a... You know, again, the answer to your question is commercial, industrial, military, science. Night vision goggles is night vision goggles. Oh my God. Um, there's a lot of potential in this in the industrial world as opposed to the photography world. But But what Canon does when they when they build these sensors is they're also patenting the heck out of everything that they're making, right? Um and so their patent portfolio for whatever voodoo they've put into this to make this happen right. um really helps them corner that market even if they're not putting it on the consumer side of things right now. But imagine this. 
When I saw this, the first thing, everything I look at in photography now goes through a color filter for me. And that is uh, intelligent photography, right? Photography being done by computers. So when you start looking at the photography that's happening in our phones, computational photography, imagine, if you would, a normal camera shooting a picture. Then you have this little teeny, teeny sensor set up in such a way to take a separate picture of its own that you then overlay resolution not mattering. Because this sees in such low light in color, you overlay the picture of this super low resolution onto the full resolution image and use artificial intelligence to extrapolate how those relate and get the normal resolution picture to see in the dark. You're a madman, Steve. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, that it's that the way that we can combine different sources of data, we're doing that already on our smartphones. My iPhone uh, takes, what is it, nine pictures uh, yeah. when it calculates things. So I'm just saying, if you did, if you took a normal 24 megapixel picture took a two megapixel picture, stretched it out, laid it over the top of it, like layers in Photoshop, changed blending modes, and then used computational intelligence and uh, to, to process that. I think it could be amazing. I agree. And we'll see where that, uh, where that goes. I, I honestly, it's a tech demo right now. We don't know what it's going to become, but uh, I love, uh, I love just well, seeing I mean, I, I what- I can't say anymore because I signed an NDA, but- no. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's so much fun to see where these tech demos kind of let my brain fire off in all directions and what the possibilities are. So I keep my finger on the pulse of them and nobody's complained about those stories on the show so far. Uh, but let's if you wanted to be a purist photographer, say you wanted to um, follow in the footsteps of Ansel Adams and do landscape photography with a, a high resolution camera, but you kind of wuss out a little bit and a big camera is not your thing. You want a smaller system, but still with a big sensor and a high resolution. Well, phase one, they had created, and this isn't news, uh, it's the, a new lens for this system. They created uh, the XT camera system designed around landscape photography uh, at a price point of $57,000. Thousand, okay. not hundred. Yeah. Thousand, and now they introduce a new lens. Uh, uh, partnered, I'm guessing, with Rodenstock because it's got their name on it. The Rodenstock HR uh, Digeron WSW 90 millimeter f 5.6. Let's stop one. on that one for a minute. Whoever has that job, whoever has the job where they sit at a desk with a dart and an eye chart. And is randomly throwing darts at letters and numbers to come up with <laughs> lens names. Let's do that differently from now on. Yeah, it's not just this. It's every, you know, they always come up with their two or three letter acronyms. And then you get a string of five of them at the end of some fancy lens. Um, <laughs> come but, on, okay, man. Keep in mind, we were just previously talking about like an 85 millimeter F1.8 lens. I don't know what the price point on that one's going to be, but it's going to be, in a word, affordable. Um yeah. 90 millimeter at 5.6, you'd think, oh, must be cheap at a price point of $13,000. Um, now, granted, it has to fit on a very large, in terms of digital sensors, a very large um, uh, sensor size. So a very big image circle has to be created. And in fact, over-engineered because the system is kind of built around your ability to shift the uh, the lens. In fact, this lens can shift both in, in the uh, vertical and horizontal orientations because it has a massive image circle. Because, well, if you're shooting with a 150 megapixel uh, camera, clearly that's not enough. Uh, you need to do uh, like a grid panorama uh, by shifting things around in order to accentuate that even farther. Steve, did... Did you, did you waste your time watching the video on yeah. this article? Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it was actually, it was, I'm going to say it, it was a painful video to watch. Oh, because I, so I honestly awful. thought it was going to be a video on this lens and maybe the body. And he kept jumping from lens to lens to lens. And this one's for this. And it was like, I don't know. Why well, this you're... one's for this. This one's for that. But yet they only show one photo 
in yeah. the entire it's literally, video. It's like standing in a B&H booth at a conference, and it's a guy behind a table with a bunch of lenses. I don't know what the point of the video was. It's I, a 12-and-a-half-minute video, too. Oh, yeah. I'm not no, going to get those he, minutes of my life back. He was good. He was nice. Well, he was a nice person. I'd have person, a beer with the guy, maybe, but... but but yeah. for the cost of the lens and the cost of the system, the production quality and the amount of information provided over the number of minutes that I watched it, uh, it was sorely disappointing. In fact, I, I encourage people, go and check out the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Find the link to this article. Watch that video. Uh, this article's on, on Petapixel, but the video's on YouTube. The links will all be there. Let me know. Uh, what you think of it in terms of compactness and ability to convey information because it didn't do a whole lot no, of it, it was it was literally from a marketing point of view let's just talk marketing which is what it is mm -hmm. it failed at its job it's well produced hor horrible at its job but here's the thing fifty seven thousand dollar medium format system that is designed it's from phase one but the entire system is designed specifically to work with the Rodenstock lenses because their goal was purely image quality, nothing but image quality. And so we're just going to do image quality and the Rodenstock are the image quality. And so $57,000 body, $13,000 lens. To, to talk about this, you kind of have to talk about both together because that's how they were engineered. Yeah, so these, these lenses have really strange mounts on them, specific for this camera system and this camera system alone. Yes. The X-T is a medium format camera, but it's tiny in comparison. It accepts the IQ4 digital backs and these German lenses, right? You mentioned the sensor shifting. Well, the sensor will shift 24 millimeters per axis, which is funny because going back to the video, he I, I played it three times. He says 12 in the video. <laughs> I'm almost, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, go watch the video, but I, I played it three times and I'm sure I hear him saying 12 instead of 24. By doing that, we talked about sensor shifting on the Panasonic that lets you create a 150 megapixel medium format image. So it's basically bringing large format to the, to the medium format world. Yeah. Well, uh, 96 on the S5, 187 on the S1R. And this is 150. Yeah. But Here's the question. Who's going to spend, let's just say you bought one lens. Let's just say you bought the body and you bought this lens. Okay, you're in for 70 grand. I have a Beamer I would have preferred, but okay. You buy this, you go out to photograph with it. What are you photographing with it? They, uh, they pinned it in the video as a landscape photographer's lens, uh, or a system for landscape photography. Um, and so with that in but mind, um, I don't know. And, and let, me, let, me, let me rephrase <laughs> that. Hold I on. I, I think you don't that. understand what I mean. But let me rephrase that. If you went out with an R5 as a stills camera right now and shot landscape with a 16 to 35 Mark III lens, you're going to get one amazing, sellable image. Yep. And it ain't 70 grand. <laughs> So, so I guess my point is, who's the one guy that needs to spend $70,000 to have one lens and a body and go shoot landscapes? Uh, well, Saudi princes, maybe. I just, I mean, if you have more money than you know what to do with, um, you spend a ridiculous amount of money on everything. You know, you'll buy a $10,000 bottle of wine because that also exists. You know, there, um, is this a yeah, product? that has flavor. <laughs> <laughs> well, or it's, it's vinegar could go either way. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Cause if you're buying like a bottle of wine from the 1930s on auction, uh, there's a chance it's going to be terrible. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story really quick. This is a rat hole, but I have to, cause we're right. in here. I worked in liquor stores growing up, multiple liquor stores as I grew up, got robbed in one of them too. Uh, but we had a guy come into one of the liquor stores I worked at when I was in my twenties. And he said, my father is going to have his hundredth birthday. I'd like to buy him a hundred year old bottle of wine. Okay, what's your budget? Oh, my budget's like maybe $100, $150. Okay. We find him a bottle. We get the bottle shipped to us. He comes to pick it up. He grabs the bottle and he looks at me and he says, what guarantee do I have that this is still good? To which my response to him was, I'll put $100 on the table right now that you're holding a bottle of vinegar. 
<laughs> but you wanted a hundred year old bottle of wine for a hundred dollars. <laughs> right? I mean, yep. j- unless that thing's been recorked, uh, it's vinegar. So anyway, rabbit hole. So, I, okay, well, thank you for, for going down that rat hole. Uh, <laughs> but my point is that they're going to sell like four of these lenses. And I don't think that justifies the production cost. You think I, they'll sell four? I think that they'll sell four. That's my prediction. Yep. Dude, there's no way. There's just uh, no way. I I don't know. I, maybe they'll manufacture four. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> it just, and one of them's a demo. Yeah, I just, I think the whole thing is, I understand the idea that, look, you want to push it and you want to try it. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm being flippant, but the truth is they wouldn't make this if it wasn't going to sell. People will buy it. Maybe Peter Lick will buy one, but he's made pictures without it. I mean, he's made, you know, lots of money without needing to spend $70,000 on a body. I just, I really don't understand putting your R&D dollars into this is, I guess, my question. That's what uh, troubles me because you look at phase one, you look at how much a system like this costs to engineer, like even just like prototyping stuff is expensive. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you can create an optical design on paper, but to make it like the best optics you could possibly ever imagine, that's expensive, very expensive. And I don't know how much money phase one is currently making. You look at, you know, um, the high resolution modes on full frame cameras that are hitting the same resolution markers. Um, You look at what Fujifilm is doing uh, with their GFX series of cameras. Yes, they're smaller sensors. They're not the full size as a phase one medium format. um, Look at the photographers. You had people like Peter Hurley, who in his early video shot phase one Mm -hmm. is now a Canon Explorer of Light and shoots Canon. He's not suddenly, you know, he doesn't have his actors that he does headshots for suddenly going, oh, dude, is that a cannon? I'm sorry, I'm out of here. He's still taking pictures. He's still making profit, as far as I know. Um, You know, I'm sure that Annie Leibovitz are still shooting. I think she was phase one, if I'm not mistaken. But there just reaches a a point of diminishing returns. And I think it was $13,000 ago. Uh, Leaf and uh, Mamiya, they've gone away. Those were players in the medium format right. space. Hasselblad's been bought by DJI, and and who knows where that brand is going to go. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, that was, was it last year or the year before? It's, Inter- uh, Interesting. Yeah. yeah, Hasselblad is owned by DJI, so... Uh, let, me, let me ask you this. This isn't even one of the stories, but let me ask you this really quick then. Why? What, did, what, what, does, uh, what does owning the brand Hasselblad do for a company like DJI? I I couldn't figure it out. Um, I mean, maybe the talent and patent portfolio, maybe to... So it was an aqua hire. Uh, maybe it was to uh, allow them to create... Because uh, they did make a uh, like a medium format GoPro style thing designed to be used on, um, on drones and things like that. So um, there could have been a tie-in, but you don't, you don't buy a company to just do that. Right, there has to be more to it uh, down the road. So you would think, yeah. You, well, you would hope, but um, anyhow. So that happened, and, and we still have phase one that is making unbelievably expensive. I'm not knocking the hardware. I'm not saying anything against the quality of an image that could come out of this system. Um, that's partly based on the photographer as well. It's not just the gear that you throw at it; it's the person that's using it. And so, if you have top notch on both ends. Where is your break-even point on buying that camera? Would you ever make money more than the cost of the equipment before the equipment is outdated? Yeah, I mean, these are the questions of time. Yeah. Right. It, well, I you brought up the, the Crown Prince thing, which I think is really the key to all of this, right? Everybody's ROI is different. If I'm a business owner and I'm a wedding photographer and I'm buying a camera body or lens or whatever... I need to know that it's going to make me money in a reasonable time frame to give me a return on that investment. If I'm a dentist that doesn't have kids and I choose, I'm speaking of somebody I actually know, and I choose to own a Nikon D5 and a Canon 1DX Mark III and a top of the line Sony and whatever I want to buy lens wise because I'm a dentist and I've got the money and I don't have kids, I'm not looking for an ROI. Clearly, I want to play with toys. Yeah. So, you know, this is this. Oh, is I would love toy. to play with this. 
I, I would, oh, yeah. I would absolutely enjoy spending Send a day me with one, this please. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but okay. But if you played that with this, this is the question. Actually, this is what it comes down to. If Don Komarechka got this 90 millimeter five, six lens and this XT body with a good back in your hands and you took your picture, would you, as the geek that you are, let's bring the photo geek weekly into it as the geek that you are, would you believe that you would see a perceivable enough difference to make you go, I get it? No. Um, That's the now, answer. So, but I, if I really heavily pixel peeped and I compared it and I did cross comparisons and charts and, you know, measuring the distortion and everything else, um, yeah, I'd find a difference. That there's no question about yeah, that. Yeah, DXO measures sensors that way, and it doesn't in any way translate usually to the photo. That's the thing. You know, I was using the um, the Lyoa 50 millimeter two um, uh, x macro lens for micro four thirds cameras a while back, and I got a, a, a newer version of it here that I've got to put through its paces. Um, in any shooting, I didn't find any problems with it, except my scanner software wasn't working and I needed to scan a document and I'm just lazy. I just take a picture of it with my camera. Um, and I noticed that the edges of the paper were slightly bowed. There was a small amount of pincushion distortion. Now that that's a slider in Lightroom for me to fix. And yeah, I'm right. pushing pixels at that point, but I didn't notice that distortion at all in any of my use of the lens, it only showed up in what I could, you know, draw a parallel to as a test, um, uh, albeit an inadvertent one. And so in that sense, if I were to take this picture, I'm sure, you know, if I had the right subject for it and I, you know, put myself in the right place, I don't do a lot of landscape work, but um, if I were to take that picture with that camera, I'd like it. No question about it. Would I like it more than a pixel shift uh, a S1R photo? Uh, the resolution be comparable. Everything would be right about the same. It depends on what lens I put on it, but I got good glass already that costs a lot less than that. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sorry. There are, there are classic black and white film images from the sixties that have been scanned in on a drum scanner at super high resolution and cleaned up and can be used on the side of a building for an ad. Or even the really old, like the gritty, grainy black and white film uh, of of the, you know, 30s through 50s, um, that if you got the right shot. Um, magic is magic. It, it The resolution doesn't matter, right? No. I mean, and you want to know what's going to happen? The crown prince you're talking about is going to buy this camera and lens, import the picture into Lightroom, and add grain. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's I, be I, honest. I, They're gonna somebody's gonna process the thing. Somebody's gonna push the pixels and push the sliders and they're going to end up going, you know what? I need a little grain here. And the sky doesn't look right. I'm going to su substitute the sky with stock photo. It there just reaches a point where I think personally, I think this is insane. I'm glad it exists. Yeah, I, I really I am glad that people have been gainfully employed in the creation of this system. Good for them. It makes a great product shot of this whole family of things that nobody will ever see in person. I agree. Maybe I'm being too hard on them, but uh, I, I want to transition um, from a $13,000 lens to a $13 lens. But before I do, um, uh, where can people find you online, Steve? Where Where is your home on the internets? My favorite social media is Twitter. Uh, and it's at Steve Brazel. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's, B-R-A-Z-I-L-L. -L. It's also at Steve Brazel on Instagram. And then the podcast is at Behind the Shot TV on both of those for Behind the Shot. Behind the Shot is at BehindTheShot.tv for the domain for the website. And then my uh, website is stevebrazel.com. And then you can find me, like I say, with, with COVID and everything, I'm doing a lot of stuff from home. I'm doing Photo Geek Weekly here with my buddy Don. We just last week recorded another critique show uh, with our mutual friend, Photo Joseph, Joseph Lenashki. Uh, I had some streaming issues on that one, so I'm telling everybody sorry, but the content is great. The audio is fine. And when a picture's on screen, you don't know that we're freezing anyway because you're looking at the picture. Um, 
And then I was just on the Master Photography Podcast. I was just on Scott Bourne's podcast too, Picture Methods. And we kind of had this kind of discussion. We talked about the state of the industry and about trolls, you know, camera forum trolls. Um, that was actually a really fascinating discussion. Uh, so you'll just kind of find me. Your find voice me is everywhere. floating in the ether and, uh, you know, uh, grab it's it like you're trying to catch smoke. It really is fun. It really <laughs> is fun. It is. That's why I love doing this show. That's why I carve out time every week uh, in order to uh, to do this. And in the morning while I'm sipping on a coffee, I'll be just reading the, the photo blogs, uh, trying to avoid the regular news of the world because that's just depressing. Um, well, and, and then and I, let, I, me, let me say this. I've got right now the guest that's on, on behind the shot right now. I, I do want to mention because it's Kaylee Greer, Dog Breath Photography. If you're into dogs, this this young lady takes pictures like I have never seen before in my life of animals. It's one of my there's a moment in there that's very emotional and it's one of the favorite episodes I've ever recorded. And then I've got two people coming up, I'm three people I'm really excited about. Lizzie Gad does uh uh self-portraits that are like nothing I've ever seen. I've got the great Joel Grimes coming up. I'm recording with him next week. And then Mitchell Wu who is a toy photographer extraordinaire. So wow. quite the lineup. Just, yeah. It's if it's you need an good. escape from reality, you know where to find it. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about so, this lens. So <laughs> I was, uh, was working on the, uh, the Boca section of my, uh, of my upcoming book. And, um, I had done a, a DP review TV video that used this lens and I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, and, I was trying to find a way to uh, recreate the soap bubble bokeh effect um, that you can get with a Trio Plan 100 lens, which are coveted and high priced, even in the used market a version of it from the, like the 1950s or 70s uh, fetches a high price. And Meyer Optic is now owned by OPC Precision Optics out of Germany. Um, they switched hands after the former handler of it went bankrupt and did some stupid things. Um, but the... Um, that effect of having a lens when wide open, having a, uh, a a brighter outer circle than the inner part of the, uh, usually it's a specular highlight that's out of focus or a light point in the distance or something like that. Um, I basically boiled it down to um, the, the reason why that effect happens is because the lens is a triplet. You know, a, a singlet is a single lens. Uh, a doublet is a double uh, double element lens um, to start correcting for some chromatic aberrations. And a triplet um, is a three element lens designed in the most rudimentary way to give decent connection of light so that the uh, various wavelengths and to put of that light in kind perspective, of re- though, a lot of modern lenses are, you know, seven, nine, 17 elements, yeah, whatever. Exactly. They, they can be really complex designs. So these were really simple back in the day. And uh, the very first triplets came out like the late 1800s. It's not anything new. Uh, But the design was used regularly in old projectors. And, uh, And if you just type in triplet projector lens into ebay I, I lied it wasn't 13 dollars. i paid 15 dollars for this one um oh, but well i can't listen now <laughs> uh and the the trouble is that people have a hard time mounting these to modern cameras because they'll often have like a little screw thing that was a focus adjustment or th- like there's no standard lens mount uh to actually use them and so you can't just conventionally said oh this to this adapter and away you go and and off to the races um But what you can do is buy an inexpensive set of bellows. I use a Canon auto bellows for the FD mount, which cost me $50 or so. Um, So that plus this, uh, I am under $100 for a lens. Yeah, I got to get the adapter for the FD mount to uh, whatever else as well. But um, it works better than the Trio Plan 100. I'm going to say that again. It gives cleaner, more precise bokeh uh, for that soap bubble effect than the $1,000 Trio Plan 100. Really? Why? Trio pl- the Trio Plan 100 has a slightly different effect. You might prefer it more. The outer edge has a bit of a rainbow separation of aberration, uh, which could add some color to it. The one that I bought, it's a Zetar 100 millimeter f2.8, Z E T T A R. But honestly, don't 
actually forget I said that. It, it doesn't matter the name of this thing. These are just all Soviet ripoffs of something else. Um, and so if you just get, and sometimes even plug into uh, Google Translate, the word triplet in Russian and search for that, because then you'll find a bunch of them definitively from somewhere in the Soviet bloc um, that people aren't going to be searching for and you might even get a better deal on them and they'll be the same thing. So uh, a simple triplet lens and get a set of bellows. I gaffer tape that uh, uh, this lens into those bellows and it is phenomenal. So if you want a fun trick lens to play with, go and get a projector triplet and have fun. I like it. That was my pick of the week. And uh, Steve, what do you got? I was going to do what I told you about in the green room before we recorded, and I, I've decided to kind of change it. And it's more generic than anything. So it's not a specific part that you need to go, you know, Google this and find this. But I'll give you a couple of examples. So I mentioned at the start that I just did a show with Jeff Harmon for Master Photography Podcast. And the reason I bring that up is because... I have a Mead. It's sitting behind me in every podcast that I do. I have a Mead ETX 125 PE telescope. It's old. This thing is 15 years old, probably. Works great. I love this telescope. It is an uh, effectively 1900 millimeters at f15. And you can do photography through a telescope in many, many different ways. A focal photography is where you would just take your camera and hold it up to the telescope eyepiece and snap a photo. There's also something called prime photography, which is where you take off the lens from your camera, you put on an adapter called a T-ring, and T-rings are like $15, and it's based on your mount. So I have an EF mount, I buy an EF Canon T-ring, or you buy a Nikon I've also heard it called a T-mount. but Or yeah. a T-mount. You click that on in your normal camera mount, and then inside of that T-ring are threads. And you thread different adapters on. So I have what is effectively two adapters that turn into three. I have a mount. My camera has two ways to connect. Way number one is I actually have a screw cap on the very back of my telescope that I can undo. I can then take a mount that screws into that T-ring and screws onto the back of the telescope. And literally, my camera is hanging off the back and it looks like the telescope is a lens. I have a flippable mirror that takes it from the eyepiece to send the image back through to the camera. Right. The other way to do it, and the reason I don't do that version a lot is weight. If I'm using tracking, the motor can't handle that weight on the back, so I've had to design a counterweight, and it just takes a lot of time. The other way that you can connect a camera, though, to any, teles any telescope without anything really special is cameras usually have where you put the eyepiece, a one and a half or a two-inch hole that you put your eyepiece in. And once you put that T-ring mount on your camera, you can buy, like I use, a Mead variable projection camera adapter. It will work with any camera because you've got the T-ring that adapts to your mount. This just screws onto that T-mount. And on the end of it, it's a long tube that has two screws on it, and you can extend it or collapse it. How far away you extend it is farther away from the scope. Therefore, your magnification is different. And then it has a little silver one and a half inch piece at the end that just slides in the eyepiece hole. And that's how I usually photograph the moon. But here's the thing with that variable. That's probably my pick really is the Mead variable projection camera adapter. But you'll need the other parts. You'll need the $15 T-ring. And this adapter is like 60 bucks, something like that. But here's the advantage of that adapter. The little silver part on the end of this telescoping tube can be unscrewed and screwed directly into the T-ring. So okay. now it's just the T-ring and a sleeve and your camera is right up against the telescope. Or you leave the entire tube intact for the variable projection adapter and it's big enough you can put an actual camera eyepiece in it. So when I do my close-ups of the moon, I don't crop them. I actually take this tube, this variable projection adapter, extend it a little bit. I drop usually a 26 or an 18 millimeter eyepiece in side of it, then attach the camera. So now I'm shooting through the eyepiece, through a long tube, and through the 1900 millimeter F15 telescope for extreme magnification. You want to send me a photo uh, that you've taken with the setup that I can include in the show notes as well? I sure can. 
Awesome. Have you done any deep space objects besides the moon? I have not, and I really should, because my telescope has intelligent tracking. Here's the reason I don't. Modern telescopes, and this is kind of the reason I even bring this subject up. Modern telescopes are much nicer. In the modern day, your telescope has GPS, and it can figure out where you are in relation to the equator to figure out what angle that telescope needs to consider base. In my case, the large motor that my telescope is on has a pole underneath it, and I undo a screw, and I have to lift up one side, angling that telescope, matching a number on the pole based on where I am in the world. Well, you haven't moved often, have you? Huh? You haven't moved often, have you? I have not, but I mean, it's the same number every time, (laughs) but you're adjusting azimuth based on whether you're north of the equator, south of the equator. Then you have to line it up with north. Then you have to find a celestial body and tell it what celestial body it is. This orientation thing, so that then when you point it at a nebula and say, I'm going to take a 30-minute exposure, and it will track it so that it tracks it properly. I'm lazy, (laughs) so that's a lot of work, and I'm 60 miles from LA, and I have a lot of light pollution. Yeah, that's it. Well, here's the thing, though. If you put a dew shield on, my dew shield is probably eight inches deep. That strangely cuts a lot of the glare that shows up on the front element of a five-inch telescope, five or six-inch telescope. Sure, but you still have, especially in California, I'm You're shooting through assume, the atmosphere that's bright. You've got like thick air there, yes. right? So, and it refracts all of that light from the metropolitan area. It can be done. You're better off to go to Joshua Tree or out in the desert and do it there. And so, no, and I have, the answer you to your question to is I have not. Someday I will. Um. I just learned just two days ago about something called the lucky imaging technique. Oh. Which is basically you're using a a deep space camera to shoot video. And then there is software that takes the separate frames of the video and stacks them to make insanely sharp uh, images with a $600 camera. That's cool. Yeah. I'm gonna have to try something like this. I mean, we get we've got a lot of light pollution where we are right now as well, uh, but we have a dark sky preserve that's about 45 to 50 <clears throat> minutes away from here. Are um, you in? Are you in Alex Lindsay's Office Hours Discord channel? Uh, no, I'm not. I would okay, love too to because there's yeah, a guy yeah. who posted some in there. That's how I found it, right. and I and I went. <gasps> It was one of those moments. I should join that Discord channel. Send me the link to that one, Steve. They close it. They open it from six to seven in the morning. We are, uh, we're rambling now at this point. Yeah, we, sorry. I think, <laughs> so my, all... my pick is experiment with uh, prime photography through a telescope. That's my pick. And uh, with that particular adapter, uh, which I'm sure you'll send me a link to, that will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, uh, this this podcast is done as a labor of love, so I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoy it. And if you have any feedback to make it better, please let us know. Uh, I'm always happy to discuss stories that are suggested by uh, by listeners or to have somebody on the show um, that uh, that I haven't heard of before that might be a good fit for it. So... Always stay communicative. Uh, you know, one thing I, before I, you go, there's one thing I have to say. Yeah. Go to iTunes or Google or whatever, and he doesn't ever do this for himself, so I'm going to do it. Drop him, drop Photo Geek Weekly a good review and click five stars because, again, no matter what, he comes and he does these shows and he does such a great job with great stories. It's, it is literally one of my favorite podcasts when I'm not on it. So- Yeah, go drop him a review. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Uh, And now it's time to stay in and shoot.